Ebola has returned after the World Health Organization declared an end to the epidemic. Mother of three dying after being struck down by a tick-borne illness is begging for urgent funding for research into Lyme disease. In the next 20 years, 30 years, there will be a pandemic and it will have the potential to bring humanity to its knees. I think predicting the future of infectious diseases is a mugs game. We have never been able to predict what was going to happen in the future in the past, and there is no reason to think we're going to be able to predict it for the future. Uh, my name is Dr. John Gerard. I'm the Director of Infectious Diseases at the Gold Coast University Hospital. The sorts of things we see in the average practice in infectious disease in Australia is uh, uh, return travellers, for example, from the tropics with unexplained fevers or other infections. Often we see a lot of complications of, of hospital treatment. We're doing a lot more, more intervention in the hospital environment and with uh, those interventions comes the risk of infection, whether you're talking about uh, orthopaedic uh, procedures such as joint replacements or perhaps the treatment of leukaemia where you're suppressing someone's immunity. All of these interventions, which are very successful, do increase the risk of, in of infection in the hospital environment. Those are the sorts of things that we see on a daily basis. Could you contrast the design of this hospital with many of the existing hospitals that perhaps were built at a time when people thought that infectious diseases were a thing of the past? The traditional hospital was, of course, largely influenced by Florence Nightingale in the 19th century. And because, because of her influence, for a long time, uh, hospital wards were, were large barns full of people with the potential for transmitting infection from person to person. As time has gone by, uh, the size of rooms has, has shrunk. And now we realise that the optimum size is probably a single room, and it certainly patients prefer that, and it reduces the, the risk of transmission of infectious diseases. There is also a greater emphasis on hand hygiene, hand washing practices, such that uh, alcohol hand rub and basins are readily accessible within a few metres of wherever you are in the hospital. We can take for example the uh, design of this hospital. This is the first of a number of hospitals that is being built around Australia with infection control and the prevention of transmission of infectious diseases at its core. Uh, what you see for example is a very high number of uh, single rooms so the patients can be isolated and a system for dealing with infectious threats should they occur. Uh, the problem, of, of course, is we don't know what the next infectious threat will be. We do know that throughout history, new infectious diseases have appeared on a regular basis, including in recent times. What I can say is that we have been very bad at predicting future threats at infectious diseases. Uh, most of the new infectious diseases threats have occurred unexpectedly and all we can do is prepare in a flexible sense to what will come in the future. New strains of influenza are already infecting birds in over 75 countries. And the way we are interacting with the animal world is putting us at risk. I think that the future infectious diseases threats fall into three broad groups. The first group are the common bacteria 
developing, developing antibiotic resistance. Uh, we've seen that ever since uh, the advent of penicillin in the 1940s, and that has progressed relentlessly since that time, and that is getting progressively worse and worse as time goes by. The second group are uh, viruses, new viruses, behaving in an unexpected way. And I include in that uh, viruses like HIV, hepatitis C, uh, Zika, Hendra, etc. Over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. Take, for example, HIV. HIV was a, a monkey virus, well, originated as a monkey virus in Central Africa and then somehow uh, spread worldwide, sexually transmitted with an incubation period of 10 years, causing immunodeficiency uh, 10 years down the track. No one could have predicted that. The third potential threat, of course, is the science fiction apocalypse threat. That is the risk of a widespread epidemic of a deadly infectious disease. The closest thing we've seen to that in, in our lifetimes has been the West African Ebola epidemic of 2014-2015. This is the epicentre of the outbreak. In a city of a million, almost 50 new cases are reported every day. When it comes to Ebola, the first thing you need to know is that dying from the virus is like something out of a horror movie. There was a lot of fear at the time that Ebola would spread to developed countries like Australia. Was that ever a real risk? I think that the threat to the world was greater than many people realised, although it wasn't the threat as you're portraying it. For example, I think many people aren't aware that Ebola spread from um, Sierra Leone, Liberia, across to Lagos in Nigeria. Now, Lagos is a far bigger city than either Freetown or um, Monrovia in Liberia has a population of over 21 million people. There were, I think, 40-odd cases in, in Lagos. Had that epidemic become established in Lagos, it is likely that it could well have then spread to other developing countries in Africa and perhaps around the world. Now, for example, I've just seen this morning a patient come back from a developing country with an unexplained fever. I would not want to spend the rest of my career fearing that someone like that might have Ebola that could then spread within our hospital. Because Ebola virus disease does not become infectious until the late stages, it is not likely to spread in an epidemic form within a developed country like Australia. But there is still a risk that returned travellers from an endemic area could introduce the infection into the Australian hospital environment and infect healthcare workers, as we saw. Many people think that the world didn't act quickly enough or do enough in response to the Ebola outbreak. Do you think that that's a fair criticism? I, 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 to some extent I agree, but also it was difficult to predict. This had never happened before. Previous Ebola outbreaks had all been self-limited. They hadn't spread to this extent. And there was no reason to suspect that this Ebola epidemic would not behave in the same way. As it turned out, they were wrong. And... And I, even though they have been criticised, even by their own, their own people, uh, I'm somewhat sympathetic insofar as we, we can never predict accurately the future with infectious diseases. Many infectious disease experts think that influenza viruses present the greatest threat. Do you think that that's correct? 
again, it's possible. We don't know. Uh, we've had uh, a number of pandemics of influenza. I mean, the well-described pandemic of, of uh, Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, and subsequent uh, pandemics in the 19, 1957, 1968. Uh, my own brother died in the influenza pandemic of 1968, so this is something we take very seriously. Will that be the next risk? Is that is the, is that the big threat? It may well be, but uh, I, I would never bet on any one individual threat being being the big risk. Well, we certainly have to prepare for it. It's been almost 100 years since we had that Spanish flu outbreak, which killed something like 60 million people, and we haven't had anything comparable since. Do you think that things have changed to make such an outbreak less likely or, or are we just on a lucky streak? There have been some changes. A lot of the deaths associated with the Spanish flu were, were due to secondary bacterial infections. And of course, at the time, they didn't have effective antibiotics. So yes, there have been some changes, but it, what, the deaths weren't totally due to uh, uh, secondary bacterial infections. Some of it is due to luck and some of it is due to the introduction of better health care, including the introduction of antibiotics. There's some breaking news we're following tonight about your health. An alarming new report is out about a potentially deadly infection spreading across America at a frightening rate, and it could be killing more Americans each year in the not-too-distant future than AIDS. For the first time, doctors have tracked the number of illnesses caused by a drug-resistant staph superbug, as it's called, that also goes by the nickname MRSA, a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association showing that more than 90,000 Americans get sick from MRSA every year, and doctors are calling this number astounding. One threat that people are particularly concerned about is antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Do you see very much of that in your clinical practice? The prevalence of antibiotic resistance has changed and grown steadily uh, throughout my career. On the one hand, MRSA uh, has virtually been eradicated in the hospital environment but on the other hand MRSA is now spreading widely in the community. We've seen a whole new group of, of bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. These are the so-called gram negatives which are becoming a problem and the other group of infections that are a big problem is uh, multi-resistant tuberculosis, very difficult disease to treat. Which of these resistant bacteria will represent the biggest threat to us, we, again, we still don't know. It's quite conceivable one of them will represent a significant threat to, to uh, the hospital environment and the community at large. Well, how real a possibility do you think it is that we'll have a future in which basic operations won't be possible because the risk of getting a resistant infection is so high? I don't think we know. Um, at the moment, the number of antibiotics coming through the pipeline is not fast enough to deal with the rate at which antibiotic resistance is developing. So I think it is, seems likely that we are going to develop a significant problem over the next decade. In terms of what the medical profession can do in terms of prescribing and washing hands and so on, do you think that there's been enough of a change in that respect? We haven't done enough yet, although we are getting better at it particularly in the hospital environment. However, antibiotic use throughout the community is still widespread and a great proportion of antibiotic use in the hospital and in the community is unnecessary. There is, there is a considerable amount more we can do about it. The other issue, of course, is antibiotics in animal feed. Uh, and this, this is a practice that needs to be stopped. 
I mean, the, the headlines are about we're, we're on the precipice of the end of the antibiotics era. But how much of this is actually a human issue? How much is a treatment of animals issue? It illustrates completely that although this is a global health threat, the response has to be a joined up response with agriculture, with fisheries, with trade, with industry and with national governments across the world. How well regulated do you think that the space is generally in terms of prescribing to patients and being used in animal feed? I can only talk about the hospital environment. So within the hospital environment, we are developing improved systems to control antibiotic use in the hospital and we're monitoring use very carefully and that is now being reported nationally. And with public reporting come, comes improved practice. What do you do to protect yourself knowing what you know? Are there certain things that you think you do differently from average people because of the training that you have in infectious disease? For the most part, because we are confronted with a patient in whom we know the, the, the nature of the risk, we can allay that risk and we do not face danger. I, I'm not in fear of my life or I'm not in fear of, of acquiring infectious disease from the patients I see on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, I can't recall ever having acquired an infectious disease from a patient in the hospital environment. The only time I've been truly frightened of acquiring an infectious disease from, from a patient uh, was in West Africa uh, during the Ebola epidemic. Arriving in Sierra Leone was, was a surreal experience. The first thing uh, you became aware of as, as you got off the plane was that things were not normal. There were military roadblocks where you were stopped, whether you were in a vehicle or on foot. You had your temperature measured. You were assessed for signs of infection. There was signage everywhere warning you of the dangers of Ebola, warning you against touching dead bodies. The capital, Freetown, where we were stationed, was seeing uh, something like 300 new cases of Ebola per week at that stage, which made it the worst affected city and the worst affected country and the worst ever epidemic of the most deadly infectious disease known. As you would be aware, um, something like 800 healthcare workers became affected with Ebola and uh, over 500 of them died. I think there was one surviving surgeon in Sierra Leone when I left, although the rest were dead. Yeah, so that was pretty, pretty scary. Is there anything that we can do to prevent a pandemic? First of all, if, it, if a deadly pandemic becomes widespread, it will be very difficult to control. So the focus needs to be on prevention. Uh, just to give you some idea, so of those 300 cases that were being admitted to treatment centres a week in Freetown, about half would die. And overall, the average length of stay in one of those treatment centres before the survivors were allowed to go home and considered Ebola free uh, was 14 days. So a quick piece of arithmetic would tell you that uh, if you have 300 cases a week and uh, the average length of stay was 14 days, you needed 600 beds, Ebola-specific beds for that uh, population of uh, about a million people. And if you translate that to the... Uh, to the Australian experience, say if you take a big city like Sydney with five million people, uh, you would need uh, something like uh, 3,000 Ebola beds were such an epidemic would ever to occur in a large Australian city. So that's completely not viable. It's, you, that cannot be done. Uh, no city in the world can do that. So the focus must be on prevention of the transmission of infection before it gets to that point. 
there are two ways in which we can prevent a pandemic establishing itself in Australia. One is border protection, isolation of the sick and potentially quarantining of contacts. The other thing that we've learned from the recent Ebola epidemic is that when an infectious disease threat establishes itself overseas, we need to be prepared to go to the source and prevent it from spreading further. And I think that's a lesson that we and the World Health Organization learned in 2014, 2015. And I think that will be the future of response to global epidemic threats. Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio or Stitcher. And please leave a comment or review. We love to hear from you.